You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader sits down with Daniel Pink to discuss the difference between having more and being more, and the result of each. Being more is not necessarily having more. You can be more in your consciousness, awareness, well-being, and sense of settling within yourself. However, we can have the logic that having more is synonymous with our interpretation of being more, and that's why we want to have more. We don't know how to be more, but if we have a bigger house, if we have a better car, if we have an airplane and a yacht, we feel we are more. When examining the result of having more versus being more, Dr. Nader and Dan Pink find something surprising. Does having more bring that same sense of fulfillment that being more brings? Daniel H. Pink is an author of five New York Times bestsellers, including his latest, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Pink was host and co-executive producer of Crowd Control, a television series about human behavior on the National Geographic Channel that aired in more than 100 countries. And he currently hosts a popular masterclass on sales and persuasion. His articles and essays have been featured in numerous publications, such as the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, and the New Republic. It's a great joy to have you with us, Daniel Pink, who is a great expert in persuasion and motivation, a New York Times best-selling author, and named one of the most influential management thinkers in the world. It's a joy to have you, Dan, and to discuss from different perspectives our human nature, how we do things, how we get motivated, and how we can motivate others. This is very important in life and progress and evolution. So first, let's start with some very fundamental aspect that you have uncovered and highlighted. And that is related to something that people perceive all the time as being a main motivator. And we know from psychology and different perspectives that punishment and reward are very important and highly seen as ways to make people do things. Can you tell us how and what was the background and the research that you have been suggesting, more than suggesting, encouraging and teaching, that there are other factors that play roles in what people do and their purpose in life and their motivations. Uh, sure, sure thing. And thanks for having me on the program. I'm excited to have this conversation with you, given your, the multiple ways that you approach these questions of human flourishing and what makes us tick. And so I'm excited to, to talk with you on your question. Here's the thing. Human beings are complicated. <laughs> They're nuanced. All right. We're not one thing or another. And, and I think that what you really want is this. So, so let's go. So you're a great person to talk to this as a physician, as a, as a neuroscientist. So human beings have biological drives. There's no question about that. I was, you know, I'm talking to you during my early afternoon in, in Washington, D.C., and I woke up pretty early. I didn't have much for breakfast. And by 1130 in the morning, I was so hungry that I said, there's no way I can do this interview unless I had like a decent lunch. So I just had a decent lunch. So, so that's a motivation, right? I'm hungry. I eat when I'm hungry, right? We eat when we're hungry. We drink when we're thirsty. We have sex to satisfy those urges, right? So that's part of what motivates us. Now, but that's not all that motivates us. You said, we talked about reward and punishments. Human beings do respond to rewards and punishments in our environment many, many times. If you punish behavior, you'll get less of it. And you reward behavior, you'll get more of it. That's part of who we are. But I think what, what, we've, what we've seen in the last 50 years, especially in social psychology, to some extent in developmental psychology, I think increasingly now in neuroscience, is that that's not all that we are. We have another drive. We do things because... We like doing them. We do things because they're challenging. 
We do things because they put us in a state of flow. We do things because it's the right thing to do. We do things out of honor and purpose and significance too. And so, so this is simply, I guess, Tony, a long-winded way of saying, we have to have a three-dimensional view of human beings. We can't just have this unidimensional or even two-dimensional view of human beings. We wanna have a full view of human beings. And this is particularly true with our institutions. I think we're more likely to have a full view of human beings in our personal interactions. But when we put people in organizations or in situations, school, work, et cetera, et cetera, somehow we revert to a two-dimensional view of human nature. And I think that's a big mistake. Is there a unifying factor in purpose? I mean, there are so many aspects of purpose. Of course, I want to eat, I want to do this, I want to do that. This is for survival. So we can say this is the survival instinct and it drives us this way. The maintenance of the species and that's why there is reproduction and all of that. So these are like big themes and the sense of purpose and meaning. but. Is there something higher, something more spiritual, something more profound that we can see in the nature of humans? Well, I mean, that's a question that philosophers and theologians and meditators and neuroscientists have been <laughs> asking since they were around to ask that question, you know? <laughs> right. And so it's hardly a yes, no question, but if you want to phrase it as a yes, no question, I would say, yeah, probably, because I do think that, that human beings are meaning-seeking creatures. That is, in a way that maybe a raccoon or a squirrel is not necessary. We don't know. But it's probably not as much of a meaning-seeking creature. As, as little kids, we look up at the sky and wonder, like, wait a second, what's all, what all is all that stuff up there? And why is it so big? And why am I so small? We have you know, religious faith where, we, where we're looking for explanations for physical phenomena, that's always been the case, but we're also looking for explanations for um, kind of behavioral phenomena. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Um, we practice transcendental meditation to get into a different state of consciousness, which is a search for meaning and purpose. So yeah, I do think that we are, I, I do think that we are meaning seeking creatures. I think that's a function of our brains in many ways, because our brains have, have evolved to the point where we, we, can, we can think about that. Now, there are other intriguing questions that I think you probably discussed on your show. For instance, like, does evolution have a purpose? Is there an end in mind? I'm not so sure. Um, I do think that individual human beings as a unit of one are seeking explanation, purpose, meaning, significance. Yeah, so there are many dimensions to that. Of course, there is the ultimate purpose of life, the meaning of life, because you mentioned meaning and what is the meaning of life. And as you say, this is a discussion for philosophers and metaphysics and meaning of existence and why we are here and all of that. But let's look at humans in their interactions and in their day-to-day -day living. Can we say they want to have more, always want to have more? And I have something to go back onto that and say that it's not actually the reality. But when we see that we want better things to enjoy on our sensory level, we'd like to see more beautiful things, hear more beautiful music. If we look at relationships, we want more love. We want more connections. And if you look at knowledge, uh, we want more knowledge, more experience. And so, in a sense, at the face value of it, we can say that seeking more is somehow a common denominator. More of what, though, of course, that's a different question. And I was fascinated by your also discussion about people asking how and what, but they're not asking why. And that's why we're going into this a little bit our audience is interested in these higher values. It would be fascinating if you tell us a little bit about the experiment where actual reward or even punishment were not competing with some other value, which is either a moral value or a sense of contribution and all of that. Sure, sure thing. There are a lot of experiments and um, even now increasingly field studies showing that. And you know, again, there's nuance to it. I think a way to simplify and capture some of the key findings is relatively straightforward. And, and it goes, I think, to the heart of the question, which is about purpose. But let me get to that in a moment. 
So here's the way I look at, at a lot of the research, which started maybe 50 years ago, sort of in the aftermath of Skinner, in the aftermath of some of the humanitarian psychologists who weren't like really great scientists necessarily. They were kind of philosophers. Not that there's anything wrong with being a philosopher, but they weren't, they weren't experimental scientists. But then, then lately, you know, in the last 40 years or so, you've had people who were actually scientists who are running randomized controlled trials to test some of these propositions. And to me, I think the key takeaway, and there's nuance in it, is this. There's a certain kind of reward, especially, that we use in organizations and in schools. Psychologists call it a controlling contingent reward. I like to call it an if-then reward, as in if you do this, then you get that. So I think the science is pretty clear that if-then rewards are enhanced performance for simple tasks with short time horizons. It's not as if people, human beings, are so exalted all the time that they don't care about rewards. They do. We, we like rewards. They get our attention. But they get our attention in this very narrow, focused way. That's good for algorithmic tasks with limited time horizons. But I think what trips people up a little bit is that the same body of research tells us that if-then rewards are not that great for more complex tasks with longer time horizons. They don't work that well because they encourage us to focus narrowly when, in fact, we want to have a broader view. And I think the evidence there is pretty clear. Now, I think where this connects to some of the things that you were asking about is, is quite fascinating, at least in, in, in two dimensions. One, I think that in some ways it's our nature, at least a lot of the time, to look at the world like this rather than like this. I think sometimes we want to look like this for survival purposes, but I think a lot of the times we want to look like this. That's what that little kid staring up at the sky is doing. And so we have this set of rewards that, that, that encourage a narrow view rather than an expansive view. The other thing, which I think goes to human nature is this, that the problem with if-then rewards isn't the reward. I mean, I just saw something and it basically claimed that I said money isn't a motivator, which is complete crap. I mean, that's, that's just not true, you know? I mean, I don't believe that that's not what the science says. There's nuance to it. The problem with if-then rewards is not the money or anything like that. The problem is the if-then. The problem is the contingency because the contingency is a form of control. And here's where I think we do learn something about the sort of probing questions that you're asking. My view is that human beings have only two reactions to control. They comply or they defy, that's it. And so if you want compliant behavior, use controlling mechanisms. If you use controlling mechanisms though in the service of getting compliant behavior, you're gonna get defined behavior because I think that being controlled runs against our nature. And there I'm willing to go out on a limb here. I, I think that it's human nature that humans ultimately don't wanna be controlled. At some level, the history of human civilization is the history of one group of human beings trying to control another group of human beings. Those other human beings sometimes responding with compliance, but then ultimately with defiance. So that's the autonomy part of the motivation. So we need autonomy. Absolutely. I think we need self-direction. We need self-determination. I think that's part of what it is to be human. And I, I really do. The more I spend time thinking about this and talking to people, the more I realize that I really am convinced that that is our nature. It is our nature to be autonomous and self-directed. Now, that doesn't mean every human being is autonomous and self-directed. I mean, a very kind of antiseptic, cold way to think about it is to think about it in terms of like, the default settings on your computer. I think the default setting on human beings is to be autonomous and self-directed. But I think that experiences and organizations and institutions and whatever other people can change the default in the same way you can change the default on your computer. But I think our default is to be autonomous and self-directed. Beautiful. And that's what would be then what you would call intrinsic motivation rather yeah. than experiencing anything. Yeah, right. Well, if you think about intrinsic motivation, intrinsic motivation is sort of like that third dimension of motivation that I was talking about before, beyond biological, beyond reward and punishment, where people do things because of the act itself, because it is inherently challenging, because it's inherently meaningful, because it's inherently good. Beautiful. And I think that the interesting thing about that is that that is self-determined. That is that, that the engine powering that is self-determination. Then the mastery comes as part of it, in a sense, because I'm just taking from your high points of motivation, yeah. which are autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So we have discussed a bit about autonomy, but mastery comes from it because intrinsic means you are the one who are controlling the situation. So there is a sense of self being involved. 
You want to say more about mastery, maybe? I think that what we see in the evidence is, again, let's just look at the observed behavior of people, all right? I'm talking to you on a Thursday, and I happen to live right near D.C. government public pool tennis courts and soccer field that was just built here. And there are going to be people just two blocks from my house. There are going to be people there this weekend, and they're going to be swimming. Why are they swimming? They're going to be swimming laps. Why? Are they training for the Olympics? Are they, are they professional swimmers? No. They're doing something because they want to get better at swimming. They're going to be people playing soccer. Why? Because they want to get better at soccer and because they enjoy the camaraderie of playing with their, with their friends. They're going to be people playing tennis, not because they're going to make any money out of playing tennis. In fact, they're paying for the privilege. They have to buy their own equipment. They have, they have opportunity costs of not making money while they're playing tennis. Completely foolish economically. Why would they be playing tennis? Because they like it. <laughs> because they want to get better at, you know, so I think that we have an intrinsic desire to get better at something that matters to learn and grow and improve. What's more, there's, there's some very, very good research in the workplace from Teresa Mabile at Harvard showing that the single biggest day to day motivator on the job is making progress and meaningful work. So when we when we grow, learn and make progress, we're inherently motivated. And that's a big driver of what people do. And I think that driver in particular is often overlooked in the workplace. Do you mind just in a brief few moments to share that experiment where people, where students were or participants were rewarded by some amount of money or more amount of money or, you know, given some other choice and the unexpected outcome? Sure. I mean, there's a pretty well-known set of studies that were done. It's very interesting. They were done by a group of two neoclassical economists, two behavioral economists. And what they did is they divided their participants, some of whom were students, not all of them were students. They divided their participants into three groups and they gave them a series of challenges, the physical challenges, like, I don't know, maybe throwing a ball through a hoop. There were cognitive challenges, things like memorization, alphabetization, and then more complicated cognitive challenges, like the classic experimental technique of giving people saying, here's a paper clip or here's a brick you have five minutes, think of as many uses for this as you possibly can. And so they divided the participants in three groups. One group was promised a very small reward. One group was promised a medium-sized reward. And one group was promised a very large reward. And what they found is that for the purely mechanical tasks, the rewards worked as they expected. The higher the pay, the better the performance. But the surprise was that when the task just got above a certain level of just rudimentary cognitive skill, a large reward led to worse performance. And I think that's, I think that's a counterintuitive and intriguing. And we've seen it replicated in a number of, you know, in a number of different dimensions. I think that in some ways there's, a, there's an American phenomenon going on here, especially in business. We have this kind of muscle memory, this somewhere between a muscle memory and intuition in America, that if we raise the salience of money, people will perform better. If we get people thinking about money, they're going to perform better. And that's true sometimes. That's the thing. It's true sometimes. So if I wanted someone to come into my office here in Washington, D.C. and stuff envelopes, I should pay them per envelope. I should give them a bonus for every hundred envelopes. I mean, there's no question I'll get more envelope stuff that way. But if I have a team of people and say, um, whoever comes up with the best idea for a new book for me, I'm going to give you $10,000. And I have a team of five people they're going to run and try to come up with great ideas, but the odds are, are, are pretty good that they're not going to come up with that many great ideas because they're going to be so focused on the money. They're not going to be thinking about the task itself. And I think that that goes against, I don't know if it goes against our human intuition. I think it goes against very much an American belief system that has spread throughout the world. I would say it goes against ultimately human nature in a sense. And this is why we started with perception of what is, what is a motivator and what is a purpose as kind of generally thought because everybody thinks like that and decision making of how to advertise and things or how to motivate people is on that level. And it's so beautiful that you are bringing this to light. In fact, it is not really new. There are No, it's not new at all. No, but you, you are focusing on it in a wonderful way because, you know, thousand years ago in the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the literature of ancient Vedic knowledge, there is a saying in which it says, do not focus on the fruit of action, focus on your action. And then because the fruit doesn't belong to you and it's not you who are going to determine it. And when you focus on your action by itself, 
you enjoy your action rather than having in your mind constantly the small purpose that is ahead of you. And I have a biological neuroscientific, in a sense, explanation of all of that. If, if you would like, I can share it. I definitely want to hear that. See, we, we lived in the jungle and we have uh, the fear and response of fight and flight as evolving creatures. And we are much more tuned and prepared to fight against situations, against danger, than to have necessarily creative power. So in terms of proportion, the exposure to situations that are threatening, the body is much more giving priority to that. And what it does, it then activates the parts of the nervous system that are ready to fight or fly away or run away. So the fight and the well-known fight or flight response. And so in this, there is the reward of kind of gaining something or the necessity to run away. And if the task is complex, it is almost interpreted by the nervous system as a threat. And there is a stress that comes in. Interesting. And what happens is the actual blood flow, and that's very physical, in the brain, moves from the cortical areas, which are the creative areas, thinking of the future, you know, frontal and prefrontal cortex. It moves to the limbic system and to the amygdala during these moments. So when you put a student or somebody under the pressure of solving a higher cognitive task, but giving them a high reward, they're almost under a stress situation. And literally the brain flow, the blood flow goes more to those areas and less to the higher areas of the brain. And when you are in a free floating situation where you are relaxed and enjoying and you're doing it and like this, you're not under a threat or pressure situation. The blood flow literally goes to the cortical areas where the computation of higher possibilities and creativities come and the solution you know, is easier there and the outcome is more positive in this way. Yeah, I mean, this is fantastic because one of the things that I've said, because I think that the evidence in social psychology and organizational behavior point in this direction is that for higher level tasks, the best use of money as a motivator is to pay people enough to take the issue of money off the table. That is to reduce the salience of money because you're offering a more kind of neuroscientific brain-based explanation for that. That when you take the issue of money off the table, the threat of not getting money is removed. Then you actually, I don't, you don't know if you reverse the blood flow, but you prevent that blood flow from going from cortical to the limbic and amygdala. Um, and so, and, and, you know, and I also think it's, a, it's an interesting observation that it's often gone unremarked is our brains evolved in a certain world. And that's not the world we're in today. And the changes in our external world have been exponential, but the changes in our brain have been incremental at best. And, and what it's, so there's a sort of like a, a, a maladaption between, you know, we have these these brains that are built for outrunning saber-toothed tigers in a world where we are doing everything from writing code to selling NFTs to making TikTok videos. And there's a little bit of a mismatch there. Exactly. And uh, kind of uh, mixing up the task that is complex with running away from the tiger and therefore activating those things that actually lead to the fight or flight response and reducing the, the blood flow to the nervous system. That's one of the reasons that, for example, transcendental meditation is very powerful because it has been shown through functional MRI to actually increase the blood flow to those forward thinking, anticipation of the future aspects of the brain, the frontal, prefrontal, and less to those amygdala and stress related uh, situations. So this is on the physical level, taking that purpose to see how its mechanics happen in the physical level. But I want to come back to this sense of having more mm. or wanting more and actually reverse it a little bit in, in accordance with actually your wonderful findings and how you motivate people. 
And that is, I would say, it is not that we necessarily want more, although we do, and that's how it appears and how it's interpreted. But if one want to take it to the ultimate value or to the higher value, it's actually we want to be more. Mm. It's the difference between having more mm. and being more. Mm. And that is really where you have this intrinsic motivation, this autonomy and this mastery. Mm-hmm. At the same time, purpose, we can look at a higher purpose, but actually humans want to be more. We want to be more. And we mix it up with having more. Of course, having more makes you feel you are more, but it's not the ultimate purpose. Okay, I love the distinction. I think it's fascinating. Is, is, the, is our desire to be more, is that our nature? Is that our biology? Or is that simply a higher aspiration that can overcome some of the constraints of our biology? Well, this is really uh, brings us back to all these philosophical questions that you highlighted. You know, it's been discussed metaphysically from so many perspectives and now also scientifically. You know, it used to be called the conatus or what is the telos, the conatus. This is Greek word, Kant and others have used this and that what is the meaning of life, why we are here, what is the meaning of the purpose, what inspires us to do things. And they consider two things. One is to survive and to thrive. So both to survive and thrive. And that is, you know, from a general perspective. We have a different paradigm of reality that is not based on the physical, material essence or ultimate reality of things, but based on the fact that actually it is more consciousness that is basic. And there is a whole story of how ultimate reality, which is rather than energy and physical, is consciousness and why this manifests as limited values and and purpose and whatever it is. And so that's a long story. I wouldn't want to take take your time. This is your time. We, we want to you know, hear from you, but I'd be delighted to share this with you through my writings also. But I think that the idea of having more versus being more is, is a kind of a fascinating distinction. And at some level, I think that you know, it, it, it's both. That is, it might be at different moments in our course of our life, at different moments in the course of our day, where sometimes we're, we're, we're trying to figure that out. I do think that there is some evidence, again, looking at the, the literature on, mostly from social ecology, but even to some extent on uh, in economics, that having more has significantly diminishing marginal returns. And that when people maybe reckon with that, they might want to jump the curve to something closer to being more. On the other hand, it's an interesting distinction. There is a kind of a, um, I always thought that in some ways when we try to understand behavior, okay, and so I'm coming at it as a layperson, not as a scholar. I'm coming at somebody who's, who's, who's reading the scholarly research and trying to make sense of it and explain it to other, explain it to other people. But at some level, I think that, that a mistake that we sometimes make is, is a mistake of our premises when we begin to think about human behavior. And we have this very Newtonian view of human behavior that, you know, you roll a ball downhill and it's going to go, depending on the angle of the hill, it's going to go at a certain speed. It's very Newtonian. And yet when you look at how complex human beings are, we might want to actually move our underlying premise to something that's closer to quantum, that is awash with contradictions. So you see things like this, like, like so if you were to ask me, are human beings selfish or generous? I would say yes. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know do human beings want to have more or do they want to be more? I would say yes. And so I think that there is a kind of, you know, it's the complexity is, is such that we, we have almost like contradictions and, and, and inconsistencies within our own behavior and that they're ultimately unresolvable. That we, what we need to do is actually look at ourselves as if we're complicated and hard to fathom in the way that subatomic particles are hard for my mind at least to fathom. Yeah, this is beautiful. I feel just that the solution to this comes from what is the end result of having more versus being more? Because we can look at it, whether having more brings that sense of fulfillment 
that being more brings or to what extent one contributes to the other or to what extent one actually means the other but is interpreted in a different way. For example, one can take the logic that having more is synonymous in one's interpretation to being more and that's why we want to have more. So we don't know how to be more, right. but if we have a bigger house, if we have a better right. car, if we have an airplane right. and a yacht and all of that, we feel we are more. And therefore, we can say that having more fulfills the, you know, the, the being more in a certain sense. It's a, just an interpretation. Whereas being more is not necessarily having more. You know, you can be more in your consciousness, in your awareness, in your well-being, in your sense of settling within yourself and feeling you have knowledge and compassion and, and like that. And then you feel you are the world. And that's how we see these moral motivators that you speak about. Also, the sense of, you know, you take the example of the hospital where they wanted people to wash their hands. If you want to say this, it's a nice story, but I mean, it was really nice when you actually show what the announcements were. It's like washing your hands makes you become less sick yourself or washing your hands protects other people from falling sick or just some kind of an, an addition. You want to say something quickly about that? Sure. This is a study. It's now a few years old from uh, David Hoffman and Adam Grant, and you summarized it very nicely. What they were trying to do is increase handwashing behavior among medical professionals. And they experimented with three different types of messages. One of them was hand hygiene improves your own health. One was hand hygiene improves patient health. And one of them was a control group slash slogan, you know, gel in, wash out. And uh, what they found is that appealing to the doctors and all medical professionals sense of purpose was more effective than appealing to their self-interest, which again, goes against our, our intuition. That is, it goes back to this idea of purpose. Why do people go into the medical profession in the first place? Many people, most people I think go in because they want to do something for the world. They want to take care of people. They want to heal. And surfacing that motivator turned out to be effective in getting the behavior change that this hospital wanted to get. And, and, and I think another thing lurking here in all of this, which you, your comments are making me think of, is again, you know, I'm coming at this from the perspective of social science, you know, and journalism rather than medicine or, or neuroscience or even, you know, certainly meditation. But there is a concept in, in social psychology, it's powerful, called pluralistic ignorance, where we think what we believe is somehow singular and unique and no one else shares those beliefs. So what happens is, is if you say, you know, you, you say to these doctors, well, are you motivated by helping patients or by taking care of yourself? They say, well, no, I'm motivated by taking care of patients. Everyone else though, my God, they only care, they only care about themselves. And so we're never, you know, and so you see this over and over and over again. You know, if you look at like, like moral behavior, if you ask a group of people, do you generally try to do the right thing in life? 95% will say yes. Do other people generally try to do the right thing? 40%, you know, it's like we think that somehow our beliefs are, and experience is so woefully unique and out of touch with other people's when it's not. I see this in myself all the time. I just did this big, I just did this big study on, on regret where I collected regrets from 21,000 people in 109 countries. And with a spur to doing some of this research was reckoning with some of my own regrets. And even I thought about some of my own regrets and felt them as like singular and unique and like so weird and out of the ordinary. And then I see basically every single regret that I have replicated sometimes almost in the wording by people around the world. The lesson is that I think we should extrapolate from our own experiences more than we do. We have this view of ourselves as somehow too singular and unique. And, and there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a useful delusion in that, that if we feel ourselves to be singular and unique, we might perform at a higher level. But at another level, it's just, you're not that, you're just not that special. What's going on in my head the feelings that I have, the perspectives that I have are pretty similar to what's going on in other people's heads right now. That's wonderful. And this is beautifully elaborated on and explained in The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward by Dan, which is a wonderful book also to think of and use for our experience and knowledge and understanding and evaluation. So that's wonderful. Going back to the sense of having and being, if you like a little bit, 
I just wanted to highlight one point because you said yes to both and we were looking at it. And I feel like those doctors and those nurses and those people who are, you know, thinking as you beautifully expressed that they are altruistic, in a sense, uh, we can turn it around and say that they are self-guided, self-directed, but not in a selfish way. It is in the sense of expansion of the self. So this comes to the definition of the self. If, you know, as we grow in actually in consciousness, based on the paradigm that I uphold and talk about, as we grow in consciousness, we take more of things that are in our environment as part of the self. You know, it starts with indirectly, of course. That's interesting. A parent takes their children as part of their self, in a sense, you know, if they are in a good relation and whatever. There are examples of different things. But then the self is seen as part of the family. And that's how you see small societies, tribes. And as you grow in your awareness, you get big society, you get a sense of nation, you belong to the nation. And if the nation is attacked, you are yourself attacked and you're ready to fight. And you get people ready to do sacrifices that are counterintuitive. I mean, go beyond being anything to save their country. And so here is no reward financially. That's not as good. There is a danger on life. So you are threatening the actual basic survival instinct. And yet you go out and why? It's because you identify yourself with something bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And when you identify with something bigger, then as if yourself has grown to that size. Mm. You know, people who want to, for the environment, it's not just to protect their little self, which is also part of it, but also they start feeling, you know, the environment is part of us, part of our life. And there is that greater sense of self that evolves. Yesterday, I had a wonderful discussion. It happened to be one after the other with Professor Michael Levin, who is a distinguished professor at Tufts University who works on what he calls the collective intelligence of cells mm. and how they kind of come together to create something and each cell accepts to take a different role uh, from whatever it was doing in order to fulfill the global role of the, of the organism, be it building a gut or building an eye or a head or whatever and it's fascinating research and it took us to this discussion also about the sense of self how when we come together there is a collective intelligence and if we think ourselves as one of the whole part of the whole then that brings a new value which actually is part of the being more if one is isolated in one's life and is small and narrow because one is stressed or tense, then one is feeling less, experiencing less potential. And as you beautifully express with your hands, you know, opening up the awareness, having broader comprehension and taking others as part of the self, then you find different kinds of also reactions and behaviors and motivations. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. In a way, you're talking about, I mean, you're explicitly talking about expanding our consciousness. Um, you're expand, right. expanding our, our consciousness <laughs> to include something beyond what's in here, but to the whole, all of humanity. Now, the interesting question is that when that cell example, do you think those cells have consciousness? Are they doing that consciously? Well, from my paradigm, yes, they are. But the huh. problem comes if we try to make it an anthropomorphic consciousness, which means okay. if I try to project my consciousness to the right. cell, it is right. absolutely ridiculous. I just right. say it, even right. use right. that term. Right. It's absolutely right. not a consciousness like a human consciousness. Right. Right. But I take consciousness to a different okay. level. I say I anything see. that is sensing, that is detecting, that is reacting is yeah is a meager level, but it is consciousness also. Right, it's not anthropomorphic consciousness. So the same thing that you would see in that, in that recent research, I can't remember the name of the scholar who did this, about how trees and forests are able to communicate with each other in subterranean ways using the, the roots and things like that, which is kind of fat. So maybe that's a form of, I think that's a form of consciousness. I think one of the barriers here, 
in terms of our own, I don't want to call it consciousness, but our own brain capacity is that when we think about having more versus being more, that having more is very quantifiable and very concrete. All right. Whereas being more is in some ways unquantifiable and abstract. And I think if we're pressed for time or attention, we're going to go to the quantifiable and concrete more than the unquantifiable and abstract. When you talk about, you know, it's much easier for me to say, it's much easier for me to measure the square footage of my bigger house than it is for me to measure how much my consciousness has expanded. I would take um, the position that having more is also being more in the sense that if you do have more, you are more because you care more about a number of things that you control. You know, if you are having more things, you are more, but it is not the only dimension. You started beautifully by saying there are complex dimensional aspects of, of human nature and reality. And one aspect of it is having more. Having more is also being more. There is nothing wrong with having more. It's that when having more only on the outside level of our reality makes us miss the inner value. And this actually brings us to what you're exactly doing. And when you say there is a different value in motivation, it's not just that. So we can translate it that having more is more, but having more inside, developing your own consciousness, is also part of the equation of what it means to be more. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And therefore, yeah, yes, yeah. you can have that quantification. And usually people who, who are more can have more in a sense because they have more comprehension, they have more skills, they have more potential to assess the market or to assess the needs and they get rewarded and then they get more. So they can be wealthier, you know, or if they really take the other dimension of consciousness, they can say, well, all of this is, I transcend all of this and I don't need it. And I just want to be within myself. And if their vocation is just that, then they are fulfilled within. And then they reach what we actually all are looking for because your, your question of why, why do we do things? So if you say, why are you accumulating wealth? Because I want to have a better car and a better house. Why do you want a better car and a better house? You keep going and say, because I want to be more happy. And what makes you more happy? Is it making you more happy? Do you have the full the range of what makes a human being happy? So I'm not saying that wealth is wrong. It's great. It indicates that one is capable and intelligent and creative maybe and gets luck maybe, whatever. There is a whole logic for that. But what is the ultimate moment when you sit in your chair and you think, am I fulfilled? Mm. Am I happy? And this is what brings us back to asking the question, is having more in this particular way is bringing the results of the fulfillment of the meaning of life, which we started. And for that, you take example of, you know, wealthy people, powerful people, and dive into their life. And I've had the experience to know and to treat and to deal with great celebrities and some of the wealthiest people in the world. And I know that they want more because they want to be more. And that these things are, of course, great. They're happy to have them. But now you can see those wealthy people wanting to do charity, wanting to help others, wanting to do things because they want to feel the self is not just that person that is limited in the skin of the body, but that self is also all the world that I can help, that I can make a difference in. Yeah, so how do we put people in positions? How do we encourage people to devote more of their time and their brain power toward being more than versus having more? Well, being and having, it's good. So we call it 200% of life. Yeah, okay, so, so, so oh, okay, let me rephrase. Of not just having more, but also being more. Yeah, so is the equation is, let's say, the purpose of life is being more from the inside and also having the ability to be more in any way that is also on the outside, the extrinsic value also, because it does play a role, as, as you've said, in certain circumstances, not as ideal. So how do we do that? Yeah. 
transcendental meditation. <laughs> okay, right, right. Why does it do it? Because it takes you to the inner richness that you have. So we, we want to have more, fine, we want to have more creativity, we want to have more intelligence, we want to have more peace. And that is an inward directed purpose or motivation or direction of growth. If you want the, the tree to grow higher, you need the roots to go deeper. If you want to be active on the outside, you need to be rested on the inside. You cannot keep being active and lose your power. If you want to have the arrow go fast to the front on the bow, you start by drawing it back on the bow. And if you want a building to rise very high, you want to have a good foundation going down to the ground. And like this, you know, if you want the wave to be high, you want it to be in contact with a deep ocean. So what we tend to forget is that inner creativity, inner value, inner sense, it, this is the thing that is making us more and making us able to be more and to do more. So what transcendental meditation does is to transcend the surface momentarily. Yeah. You don't do it all day. Yeah. You go back yeah. to the self, dive into your deep self, find the infinite energy and reservoir of intelligence that's within you, and then you can go out and have more as much more as you like. Maybe you wouldn't bother to have so much more. <laughs> maybe you just want the basics, or maybe you want to be the, the king of, or the queen of the universe. That's a different story. Right. Are there other practices or belief systems that you think can serve a similar purpose? So for instance, take organized religion. Does organized religion do that for some people? Well, organized religion inspires people on an intellectual level, emotional level, to seek more. You know, in, the, in different religions, it says, you seek the kingdom of heaven and all else will be added unto you. But transcendental meditation is a simple technique that is not a philosophy, it's not a belief system, it's just right. a mental technique. It's a practice, yeah. Right, so religions guide in this direction. All philosophies, all wisdom in general, they guide in this direction. What about things like, like, like praying, which is a practice that you would see in the Christian, Jewish, Muslim tradition? Well, praying is trying to communicate with a higher value. If you are stressed and, you know, let's say the mind is like an ocean, active on its surface, like the waves and calm and calmer in the bottom. If you're not in touch with the bottom of the ocean, you are just being kicked around by the waves on the surface. So what we're saying is, the mind has different dimensions. So when you pray on the surface, you're praying on the surface and nothing really necessarily comes out. I mean, you have people who pray so that they can steal better or they can get something. You know, you have yeah. drug lords who have their own right. thing and they pray right. that they get protected and all of that. This is really on the stress surface level. If you want to have your thoughts achieve the goal, you have to go to the depths of the ocean. So what transcendental meditation does is opens the awareness by removing the stresses and strains that block our contact with our inner self and allow us to get rid of those stresses and use the full depths of the ocean of the mind and consciousness. And as we said, actually, it is shown that when people sit to practice meditation, there is higher brain coherence, right. which means calling upon the higher values of creativity and intelligence. And there is greater blood flow to those parts of the brain that are related to creativity and intelligence so that one can achieve more on the outside. So basically, water the root to enjoy the fruit. This is something we use. So about how many people around the world estimate practice transcendental meditation? We have about, we counted recently about 12 million people. Yeah. So imagine we, let, so let's, let's just be bold here. Imagine we increase that by 100 and, and make it 1.2 billion. What does the world look like there? Well, we know, my answer will be scientific. We know what it will be like because we have done research in cities and towns where 1% uh, of the population has. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So tell me about that. And then what happens is you have reduction in crime, reduction in accidents of the roads, more prosperity, better life, and many social indicators improve. 
And now there is an advanced technique of transcendental meditation, which doesn't require that 1%. It's, we have found, even by analyzing it, the square root of 1% is enough. And we did literally studies. For example, we did a prospective, proactive study in Washington, uh, where we told the scientists, the social scientists, that we're going to do this experiment. And you observe crime rate, uh, accidents of the road, hospital admissions, and other factors, other variables. And we came from all over the world and did that. It was in the early 90s. And we have, the scientists have seen these changes, which could not be explained by any trend that was before, you know, like seasonal trend or weather trend or anything at all. And when the group dismantled, actually the crime came back. And so it sounds like esoteric or different, but it actually has been replicated under many situations. And that is one of the strong support for the idea that consciousness is primary rather than the physical reality. And that's why I have written this paradigm about the primacy and importance of consciousness in handling our own personal life as well as the problems that we face in society. Because ultimately, all the problems we have mostly come from human decision-making and behavior, be it war or be it relationship to the environment mm -hmm. and all other things. So maybe the next prime minister of the UK or the current president of the United States or pick your world leader should instead of focusing on economic policy and taming inflation, should be leading a revolution in consciousness. Absolutely. From yeah. my perspective, yeah. this is the only solution. Yeah. Because all, all other solutions have, you know, war has never proven to be yeah. ultimately beneficial for anybody. I mean, you can sell some arms, you can say you're protected yourself from this invader or that thing. But ultimately, the loss of human life, the loss of economical things, etc., is overwhelming. And it's a loss to everybody. Whereas this solution is proven as far as we are concerned, as far as I am concerned. So, so Tony, I'm waiting for the American presidential candidate to come up with the modern equivalent of, <laughs> I think it was Calvin Coolidge. I'm, I'm not sure, somewhere around that era, early 20th century America. There was a slogan, and it's all about having more. It's all about material survival, where it says a chicken in every pot. That was the slogan, a chicken in every pot. That is, we, want, we don't want people to be hungry, chicken in every pot. So now, 21st century, we need a presidential candidate who's going to promise a mantra in every head, right? <laughs> from a chicken in every pot to a mantra in every head. Yeah, it's not the mantra that does it. The mantra is the technique. It's, it's the nature of the mind to go for more more and being more that dives it and the mantra is just a trick a vehicle that helps and actually this is what will have to have a chicken in every pot because when there is more creativity more intelligence being displayed, true it can go the arrow can go the other direction right exactly if we have a if we, have a, if we yeah if we uh, just stick with me on that if we have a mantra in every head we can have two chickens in every pot exactly pull the arrow back to hit the target with strength and again, and again, taking this down a construal level a little bit, there is some very interesting research, once again, in social psychology showing evidence of this in a related way. So there's a, a pretty interesting study done by Amy Rosniewski, Barry Schwartz, and a couple of other people of West Point graduates. And what they did is, is they, upon entering West Point here in the United States, the United States Military Academy, Army officers here in the States, they tried to divine students' motivation for coming to West Point. And so, and they, they, they divided the, the motivations into three different areas. One were people who were purely fundamental, who said, I, I'm, I'm doing this because I want to serve my country. Then there were people on the other side who said, you know what, it's a free education and you know, I, cannot, you know, I, I couldn't afford to go to college and this is a way to get my college for free and uh, build some good job skills. And then there were people who had both. It's like, yeah, I want to serve my country and it's great, I get a free, I get a free college, okay? So, so we have, purely instrumental reasons, purely fundamental reasons, and then most people a mix. And then they looked at their ultimate measurable career success. I don't know what it was, 10 years later, 15 years later. And the people who did the worst were the people who had purely the instrumental motives, the people who did it because I just want to, they, they, they ended up the worst. What was interesting is that they were barely better than the people who had those mixed motives, the mixed motives of both instrumental and fundamental. The people who did the best, the people who, let's use your parlance, the people ended up 
having the most were the people who were focused on singularly on being the most. Beautiful. These, fundament, <laughs> these fundamental motives led to better outcomes in part for this peculiar quantum mechanics thing that the the best way to reach something is not to pursue it in a way you know what i mean or that if you're if your pursuit is on being and those kinds of higher values then in many ways the material having values can take care of themselves a wonderful wonderful study the Thank paradox you. is that i think more broadly is that in some ways the pursuit of having more is a flawed strategy for having more Beautiful. the that the better the better strategy is to pursue simply being more and as a consequence of being more you might have more beautiful absolutely great and project you know you're being more when it's needed to whatever is required whatever that means at that moment in your life in your situation in your context that's fabulous it's really nice thank you for sharing this this experiment so we took one hour from your time. I don't know how, if you'd like to say anything more or discuss anything more. I think I was hoping we go into the regrets a little bit and the four major regrets that you expressed. I'm happy to spend, I don't want to torture your listeners, but I'm happy to spend a few minutes on that. Yes, please. We'd love to. I think it does connect and, and I'll try to be brief here. So uh, for the latest book, I looked at, again, there's about a half century of research on this emotion of regret. And what it tells us pretty clearly is that everybody has regrets an incredibly common human emotion and that if we actually treat it right that is we don't ignore our regrets we don't wallow in our regrets we confront them they can actually improve our performance on a range of tasks what i also did as i mentioned a few moments ago is that i collected regrets from all over the world uh, we have a database now of over twenty-one thousand regrets from people in i think we're up to 109 maybe 110 countries and what i found when you read through these regrets one after another is that around the world, people seem to have the same four core regrets, the same four core regrets, and with remarkable universality, well beyond nationality. And these four regrets were what I call foundation regrets, which are, if only I'd done the work. These are people who regret spending too much and saving too little, not taking care of their health, not studying hard enough in school. We have boldness regrets. People regret not asking somebody out on a date, not starting a business, not going on an adventure, not starting up. We have moral regrets, if only I'd done the right thing. A lot of regrets about bullying, mistreating others, swindling others, marital infidelity. And then finally, connection regrets, which are if only I'd reached out, which are about our, our relationships. And I think it, an interpretation of these four core regrets is that they serve as a photographic negative, a reverse image of what the good life is, what constitutes a life well lived. That is, foundation regrets tell us that we want a degree of stability in our lives. And this goes back to the nuance that we we're talking about before, where we, you know, we do have basic needs, right? We want a degree of stability in our life. A good life is typically not precarious. Boldness regrets. We want to learn and grow and do something, recognizing that we're not here forever. Moral regrets. I want to do good. I want to be good. I want to tell the truth. I want to be honest. I want to do the right thing. And when I don't do it, I feel crappy. And you know what? I think that's how most people are. I don't think I'm that special. I think that's, I think human beings are moral animals. And finally, you know, connection regrets tell us about love and, and, and belonging and affinity with other people. And I think that these regrets tell us what we want out of, we want out of life. And, and in some ways, a lot of these regrets, when I think about them through your lenses is that these, a lot of these are really being more, it's about being more. Beautiful. <laughs> Stability is a little bit about having more. It's, it's really about having enough. Stability is in some ways about having enough, but the rest are about being more. Boldness is about being more. Moral regrets are about being more. Connection regrets are about being more. And again, well, I think what's so interesting about this and, and including some of the work that you're doing, especially someone coming from a, such a multidisciplinary perspective, is that a lot of these paths take us to the same destination. That is, if you look at certain religious traditions, if you look at how our brains and minds work, if you look at things like transcendental meditation, if you look at even uh, in a growing body of social science, they point us toward this, I think, similar conclusions about what it is to be human and what constitutes a life well lived. And, and, and going back to that ultimate question of that little kid staring up in the sky asking, why am I here? Beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for this wonderful summary and a great book. 
and bringing it around to being more <laughs> and transcendental meditation which actually makes everyone actually go within so not to fight the stress or the, the regret but let it go deal with it and get beyond it and grow beyond it so transcend the regret in a sense also meet with it i mean face it and then go on not imagine your self-image as being those things that you have done or been but you know you are more and you can be more and you can discover this through transcending within discover that you are more already but it was hidden and overwhelmed and overshadowed by stress and strain and circumstances this is wonderful Thank you so much, Dan. It's really a delight to speak with such a great mind and, and teacher and helper of so many people. Well, thanks for inviting me onto the program. I really enjoyed the conversation. I, you know it's a good interview when you have, you can see here, you have, when you have a page of notes that you've taken in the interview. So I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciated it very much. It was really a delight. Read that book and all the books. We have five New York Times bestsellers from the great writer, philosopher in his own way, but social scientist also, Dan Pink. And we'll follow you and look forward to being with you again. Okay, what a pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.